Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing, and planning produced by Open City, which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to The Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive programme of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the London free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the London, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Paris bans rental e-scooters. As living standards continue to collapse, striking rail workers when a paying Crossrail finally opens with 10 new central London stations. A new culture war erupts over 15-minute cities. How did this end up happening? Well, Merlin, what's this all about? What's this all about? What's this all about? Transport. Greener transport option. Libertarian invasion of the transport system. I'm a complete transport geek. A future of transport. 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 London's labyrinthine network of roads, railways, tunnels and even high lines constitute the constantly evolving highways which get us from A to B. As issues of congestion, air pollution, accessibility and the climate crisis continue to drive conversation, decisions about how we move around the city become ever more important. My name is Poppy Waring, I produce The Lundown, and this week I will be bringing you a special episode revisiting some of the top transport stories we've covered over the past year. Welcome to The Lundown. In recent years, transport has become an increasingly contentious topic, and one of the latest flashpoints has surrounded so-called 15-minute cities. This urban planning concept is intended to ensure all a person's basic needs are accessible within walking or cycling distance from their home. This unlikely new culture war front has seen critics, amongst them the GB News host Mark Dolan, slamming the concept as a Trojan horse intended to control our movements and infringe on our personal freedoms. Here's Deneen Roan, project manager of the Town and Country Planning Association, responding to the news that Tory MP Nick Fletcher stood up in Parliament to demand a debate on the, quote, 
international socialist concept of 15-minute cities back in February. Yeah, it's got all of the buzzwords, hasn't it? Culture war, freedom, restriction, socialism. So it's it's really made to rile people up. Mark Dolan's done a good job at doing that there. <laughs> um, when we really dig into it, we're really not that far away from a period of time with lockdown where people saw a massive curtail of their personal freedoms mm. for the benefit of of the people definitely but people had to deal with that for so long and are sort of now coming out of it that i think as soon as people mention any sort of restriction or change or movement it's a really easy way to get people's backs up yeah because it's sort of tapping into all of that frustration that's still sort of sitting with us from uh, the covid lockdowns exactly um and you mentioned that it's only really spoken about in urban planning and built environment professional circles, which I think is also another big part of the problem. I can easily go into work and just throw out the words, like 15 minute cities, you know, lo- local plan, design codes, and people get it. Once I leave that building, yeah, quite literally, if I start spouting those words, people would think, what on earth is she speaking about? And yeah, that's part of the problem. We need to get out of those circles and explain to people it's not a big radical social idea. It's actually saying maybe we should design places so that you don't have to get into a car and travel 20 minutes to go to the pharmacy. Mm. maybe the everyday things that you want should be in reach. Yeah, it's very strict because like Dolan and all these kind of, you know, Republicans in America are sort of saying that, oh, you know, 15 minute city is, is bad for business, bad for like local shops and stuff. But surely footfall down the high street is really the lifeblood of any local economy and that it is precisely the shift towards like car-based urbanism and people driving out of town to big retail parks that has killed so many local businesses that used to be on on the high street. So where, in your opinion, does does the truth lie? Could could kind of more local footfall and cycling be good for business or, or bad? No, no. I am absolutely on board with, and we have the TCPA as well, on board with the idea of 15-minute cities and people being able to cycle to local businesses and walk to local businesses. That footfall is really important. Most people, when you're out and about and you're going shopping, a lot of the thing that sort of gets you to go into shops isn't being able to drive there. It's just strolling along. Mm. I'll pop into that shop. I'll check that out. I might pick this up. One of the, I think, really biggest and most popular campaigns um, for Noor, um, shop in Brixton. It wasn't people coming from, like, stains and arguing that we need to keep this shop because I want to drive here. Mm-hmm. No, it was people in the local area, people who had, from various different backgrounds, who had gone to that shop and supported it for years and years and years and wanted it to stay there. It's local people who keep those things going. And even in London, where a lot of the time we live side by side by different communities. And yeah, there's that whole thing about, you know, we're not all, Londoners aren't sort of lovey-dovey and we sort of ignore people. Um, But you do sort of build relationships with 
local people in the shops. Okay, so like we're we're clearly hearing that a lot of this kind of anti fifteen minute city rhetoric is based on lies. Essentially, this this is not a a a true or accurate argument that um, some of these commentators are making. So, given that, given that we're in a a kind of culture war rather than an evidence based debate, what is the right way to respond? Does it work to fight? a culture war with kind of facts and figures or do we need to find a different tactic given that this this conversation has kind of fallen into this realms where people kind of (laughs) make up the evidence that uh, they want to hear? I think the thing that conspiracy groups and far-right groups, and I hate to phrase it this way, but do well at is buzzwords and playing on people's fears and using sort of quote-unquote big words that people don't understand that can pick people up because in that way you don't really have to read into it. If you recognise the big words that they're talking about, you can just go along with that. I think trying to match that is not going to work. Mm. The way to go about it is to actually break it down. So it's the same with that traffic restrictions. You don't say to people, this is going to ban you from getting in your car. No, you tell people the benefits that are going to come from this. So again, with 15-minute cities, having local amenities, that's what it means, actually. Being able to go to your your doctor and then your pharmacy within 50 minutes, being able to wake up in the morning and say, oh, we don't have anything for dinner and go to a local shop within 15 minutes. I think most, most people, probably everyone, would say that that's a benefit and explain, break it down and explain it to people like that and keep on emphasising that, I think, is the best way to go. Nice stuff in your neighbourhood. Yeah. (laughs) Imagine, imagine how radical and socialist that would be. Oh, my God, it's a conspiracy. Paris's socialist mayor, Anne Hidalgo, has long been a fierce advocate for the 15-minute city. She's overseen the French capital's transformation into a more cycle-friendly city, with a huge expansion in cycle lanes and discrete initiatives targeting private and polluting vehicles. Paris was one of the early adopters of the rental e-scooter, with more than 15,000 now available across the city. However, a rising number of scooter-related incidents and fatalities led Hidalgo to call a public referendum on the electric scooters, and Parisians voted overwhelmingly to ban them. Merlin discussed the crux of this story with London School of Architecture head Neil Chassaw earlier this spring. Is it is the referendum clever or is this just a kind of way to dodge responsibility for an issue which realistically the public sector should have seen coming and should have come up with some kind of sensible solution to make this work in Paris rather than just say, oh, this is too much of a headache, let's just have a referendum and try and ban it. There's a dodge, isn't there, in the in 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 the referendum question, as you're suggesting, because it avoids asking the bigger question about how people want to get about in the city and to do so in a in an affordable and sustainable way. And instead, it locates it it isolates one form of one method of transport. And yeah. kind of bans it quite crudely. Yeah. But again, I suppose my question would be, you know, what if there had been a municipal e-scooter hire system yeah. that had built in right to the... So rather than just trying to kind of... You just get landed with this kind of very libertarian, I suppose, vision of mm. transport growing out of the sort of Uber movement through the e-scooters, through the e-bikes. Mm. Um, uh, rather than as you're saying, policymakers kind of being on the front foot thinking there is this technology 
and how do we shape it for the public good and embed in it sufficient public control that we don't end up in a situation whereby there has to be a, a, a crude referendum and then an outright ban. I think as a cyclist, we're both cyclists, it is really fun being able to just be in control of your transport and just be able you know, to go anywhere, to have that autonomy, to have that individualism, you could say, right? And that's part of the appeal that's sold in car advertising, you know? So we, we kind of know that people in a city, in any kind of environment, people want to be able to travel anywhere they want, but to do it safely, right? And the thing is, what we have is a situation where there's just various different competing demands to do it safely. And so as a result, because we've, we've, we've privileged cars over so many other things, and we've gone through all kinds of intellectual hoops to justify uh, cars and the pollution that they cause. So that's all intellectually somehow watertight <laughs> in our society. And then along comes the e-scooter, and we're like, oh, we don't know if we can fit that in to this thing. Well, obviously we can. We just need to reappraise this system, this hierarchy, and these privileges so that everybody can travel if they wish autonomously enjoy the freedom and that kind of privilege but through whichever medium they they choose it's totally possible if we can give up enormous swathes of, yeah. of cities all over the world to cars yeah. we can probably find enough space for the e-scooter for the cyclists for the vulnerable pedestrian to all get along fully. but then that maybe is what is is interesting and exciting about hidalgo's move which is underneath it an attempt to curb maybe i mean yeah, you know yeah. uh, uh, this this kind of libertarian um invasion of the transport system yeah and if that if that is the actual political intent that's quite interesting and i am i am quite for that and i'm up for having that i'm up for having that discussion yeah. i don't know and i don't know what a kind of left libertarian argument might look like because i suppose there is some, there is something anarchic about it yeah. about the e-scooter and indeed about the the kind of the lime bike or the e-bike or whatever which is it's sort of self-organizing except it's also then you know requires quite a lot of intervention from a from a company and quite a lot of, so there's a there's a there's an interesting almost quite subtle argument that isn't being played out particularly honestly openly yeah. maybe in the in the kind of policy debate and wider discourse and that's that's what's for me really interesting about this story and pro and, and probably is the conversation that we should be trying to stimulate within yeah. within london do we want to be this sort of kind of libertarian anarchic self-organizing thing or do we believe in in you know i suppose what i would believe more in which is a sort of great ideal of public transport and public ownership of the of of our of our transport system and so that i think is the real nub of this story um and that's certainly what's at the nub of the the 15 minute city culture war episode one of the biggest transport stories to land in London over the past year was the arrival of Crossrail. Four decades after the scheme was initially proposed, four years later than planned and around £4 billion over budget. A few days after the public opening in May 2022, Merlin spoke to Deborah Saunt of DSDHA for her take on the brand new Elizabeth Line. Well, first of all, I have to say I love infrastructure and I'm a complete transport geek, so I could go on and on about the Elizabeth Line for a long time. Um, apparently, it was first proposed long before any of us were around, back in the 40s, uh, and it's a testament to the UK's total inability to do infrastructure because it's taken nigh on 70 or 80 years to get this thing to 
finally arrive. And so it's proposed just after the war when people realised that uh, London was sprawling and we needed effective uh, communication from east to west uh, so that people could get into the city and get out of the city easily. Tying into the uh, existing underground uh, system at several really important junctions. And one of the great facts I've discovered about it is it's going to change our perception of where the centre of London is because it used to be that most of the train lines crossed Oxford Circus. So you would say, oh, right, Oxford Circus, that's the kind of hub. But now it's going to be Tottenham Court Road. And obviously... Um... We're all very excited about the, the architecture of the Elizabeth Line. Basically got 10 new stunning central London stations to explore and enjoy. Um, could you talk us through uh, what do you think of, of the design that's gone in, into it? Uh, what do you think of Grimshaw's designs for the platforms and ticket halls, that station, that line-wide design system? And also, what do you think of those um, individual standout stations of the new network? Uh, well, I was lucky enough to use my app yesterday my uh, city mapper app and asked to get from liverpool street to tottenham court road and what was interesting it sent me to moorgate station and it was absolutely extraordinary really huge generous welcoming beautifully designed uh, entrance hall and above that some oversight development going on still on site so you really got the sense of wow this elizabeth line is uh, is prompting people to build right in the centre again. It's really triggered a huge increase in building. Um, and when you enter in, it was completely frictionless. It was absolutely sublime, really. It, just beautiful experience of going through the ticket barriers and then down, and I should say it was sublime and then it became quite scary because they are some of the deepest escalators allowed. Uh, God forbid you drop something. But I was completely transfixed by just this spatial dynamics, uh, amazing generosity of height. You can tell that there's an appropriate amount of expenditure has been placed on making it feel welcoming and safe. You come down to platform level and there are beautifully curved corners get, taking you around on routes, whereas I'm sure we've all experienced in the London Underground, that's the, oh, I'm sorry, excuse me, excuse me moment when you bump into people on those really sharp intersections of one tubular tunnel with another in the pedestrian area. So it's it's really ergonomically designed and it's got great details. It's like being in a sci-fi movie because everything's 3D modelled and 3D man manufactured. So I I'd say it's a brilliant job. Obviously, the map makers, they're getting a bit of heat. OK, so the London Underground map, you know, widely recognised around the world as being a great piece of design. Um, however... Many pundits, especially online pundits, uh, have been accusing the addition of the Elizabeth Line, the new purple route through the centre, as being um, ill thought out, confusing and messy. Um, have you had? Uh, what do you think of the new map? If you had a chance to look over it um, and how these interchanges have been drawn on, uh, does it need a rethink? Is it up to standards? I think in your mind's eye, the tube map is an elegant composition of, of very beautiful coloured lines, all tonally blending wonderfully and it is a kind of work of art and at the time back in the 30s it was a very simple system that you were illustrating and now it's fantastic what we have in London in terms of integrated transport because it's not just telling you about the underground map it's telling you about the overground map it's telling you about D the DLR another piece of infrastructure it's telling you about the journey from Essex all the way to Reading, it's, um, it's actually dealing with a kind of whole ecosystem of transport. 
And I think it could be redesigned to make it easier, but if you're there and you're not tax savvy and use your apps, which the majority of people use now for transport, you will find the information you need on that map. So it is really good in terms of telling you that you can walk between stations, for example, in under a few minutes. It's telling you where you have ramped access, uh, where you need to ask, you know, for example, where you have a few steps, but not many steps. It's, got, it's absolutely, maybe it's just got too much information in one place uh, visually, but in terms of what there is there, it's, in, it's really impressive. I would just like to add the most shocking underground or transport map you can look up is that of step-free access in London on the underground and integrated transport. It's truly extraordinary. This sort of disability access map is a shock because it shows a complete lacuna, a kind of void in the centre of London, where there's hardly, even with this Elizabeth line, there's hardly any disabled access. It's round the newer parts, the sort of perimeter of uh, London, that you can have disability access. And, and when we say disability, we think, oh, that's only just a few people. Let's just call it step-free access. It's people with buggies, trolleys, mobility aids, but which many people have, and it's also for bikes. And I think we really need to put the focus now on the disenfranchisement of people who need step-free access, particularly in the centre. We're spending millions on museums and galleries and public realm, but people can't get to it. It's, it's really, really hard to move around in the centre of the city still. The plight of rail workers fighting for better pay and working conditions is another story which took centre stage this year. The ongoing rail strikes, which began in June 2022, led by the RMT union, have become the largest industrial dispute in the UK since 1989 and has brought attention to the many challenges facing those who work in the sector following decades of privatisation, pay freezes and underinvestment. We covered this story with Albert Pani back in November, where we discussed a tweet shared by the comedian and satirist Rory Bremner from Rail Workers, which, at the time of recording, had been liked and retweeted more than 75,000 times. Here's that tweet. Three years ago, we accepted a 0% pay rise. Two years ago, we accepted a 0% pay rise. But this year, they came to us with a 0% pay rise plus over 2,500 redundancies, changes to terms and conditions, an increase from 28 weeks of nights to 39 weeks of nights, an increase from 32 weekends worked to 39 weekends worked. Currently, for a night shift, we get time and a quarter. For a weekend, uh, we get time and a half. They wish to cut both of these to time and a tenth. So that's a 15% pay cut on every night shift and a 40% pay cut on every weekend. But they want us to work more of them. This is the modernisation they talk about, not technology. We embrace technology and have seen more and more of it in recent years. They also wish to fire and rehire the operative grades and bring them back on a new job title, but on £9,000 a year less. They also want them to use their own vehicles to get to work sites. Uh, all this when fuel is at its highest. They will also be pulled when currently they are part of the team. The press are painting this to be about pay above all else. It is not. But now we've said, sod them. We are going to demand better. I wish everyone could see past the government-controlled media smear. So that's the tweet that Roy Bremner 
rebroadcast, 75,000 likes and retweets. Um, so Albert, what's this all about? Uh, why are these rail strikes so revealing about the current state of UK industrial relations? Well, that tweet really sets out what the issue is about and the extent to which uh, the workers expected to take a real terms pay cut. So look, previously, Network Rail had said discussions were closed. Um, and then the reason the planned strikes this week have been called off is because those those talks are now open. So clearly the strikes are having a desired outcome, which is that they, delete, they lead to discussion and negotiation that tries to address this real terms pay cut. But of course, it's not just about the railway workers. So the cost of living is affecting everyone, in particular, you know, public sector workers. So uh, nurses have announced that they're going on strike, which is their first ever national strike. Um, university staff are set to go on strike. Rural male workers are intending to strike. And we've had the barristers go on strike. So there is about to be a wave of industrial action. And of course, that other period of sustained strike action in the 70s was also during a period of high inflation. But I think also it's important to say that the public sentiment is, it seems to me, kind of largely on the side of people who are taking action, because everyone, more or less, is experiencing the the impact of the cost of living crisis in one way or another, or is at least like one degree away from someone who is impacted by it in a very tangible and clear way, in a clear way, as in the way it's been set out in the tweet that you read out. So I think this disruption is sort of accepted, it's kind of priced in for the kind of chaos that's about to hit us over the next couple of months. Obviously, this week, uh, we've seen an enormous amount of coverage about the COP27 uh, meeting. And you know, we're thinking about this, you know, rail surely is you know, the solutions we need you know, for a carbon neutral, industrialised society. We need more rapid mass transit public systems like this. Um, you've got the politicians going out there, taking to the podium, saying how committed they are to this. And yet back at home, um, a situation is being allowed to perpetuate, which potentially would could see fewer people using trains, you know, could see people getting in their cars, could see carbon emissions going up. You know, why? What is the significance of this, this kind of disconnect between what's being said and the reality uh, on the ground? Yeah, I mean, improved rail travel certainly is one way of addressing climate disaster. You know, is it significant that the strikes are happening at the same time as COP? Um, not really. I mean, they're happening at the same time as a climate breakdown, which is a real point and kind of speaks to the in- interconnectedness of the environment and the economy. But as far as COP itself goes, I mean, I'm kind of with Greta. I sort of question the efficacy. The 2021 census data on housing and car ownership inspired debate after it revealed the disparity between London's relatively low levels of car ownership and the disproportionate amount of space dedicated to road infrastructure. And despite what appears to be an extensive road network on paper and at a glance, London's roads remain the most congested in the world. Finn Harper came on the show back in January to make the argument that congestion will not be improved by building more roads in the city. Instead, we should be meeting the needs of Londoners by reducing the space given over to roads, therefore de-incentivising driving and encouraging people to walk, cycle or use public transport to navigate the city. Here they are making their case. Most people who study traffic and who understand how traffic moves through cities and the, the sort of dynamics of that have known for decades that building roads does not relieve congestion. In fact, it does 
the exact opposite. Building roads has never relieved congestion. It never will. The Silvertown Tunnel will not reduce congestion. This dynamic has, has been sort of shown in studies again and again and again. I'll give you an example. In the run-up to the Olympic Games in, in London, you know, billions of pounds were spent widening the M25 ring road that, that goes around London, a n- notoriously congested uh, motorway. And uh, they said that the reason they're, they're doing this was to relieve congestion, to make it quicker to travel around the M25. But in fact, uh, a study in 2021, which was led by David Metz, who is the um, former chief scientist of the UK's Department of Transport, found that all the, those additional lanes on the N25 didn't improve journey times at all. It was just as congested as it always had been. The only difference was that 23% more people were driving on it. And this is exactly what we, we, we find everywhere, that the more roads you build, the more people drive. And that is, uh, is, is a phenomenon called induced demand. Uh, and if you take a break from the way that the media often frames the kind of incendiary stories around traffic, actually, this is common sense, right? Induced demand is a kind of familiar dynamic to anybody who thinks about economics, right? If you reduce the price of cigarettes, what's going to happen? More people are going to start smoking, right? As they become smokers, they get hooked on smoking, then the price uh, goes up again as demand goes up for smoking. And pretty soon you're back to a situation where cigarettes are just as expensive as they always were, but more people are smoking. And that basically the same thing happens when you build new roads. You induce new demand, brings more people out onto the street to drive and congestion returns to the same as it's always been. So it, you just can't build your way out of congestion. The only way to reduce the number of cars that are on the road, reduce the number of people who are choosing to drive, is to actually reduce the amount of space that cities dedicate to roads in the first place. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear how, how would this happen in a place like Tower Hamlets, for example? How would you... Firstly, reduce the space available to cars to a stage that that does reduce congestion overall. And then what would that what would these spaces then be used for? Because there's this idea that streets just naturally have cars along the edge. Right. And then there's also what does a street look like without any cars on it at all? How does this work and how does it work with with limited local authority budgets? somewhere like Tower Hamlets, for example. Luckily, there's a lot of research in this already. So um, Paul Lecorat, I might be butchering pronunciation of his surname, is a a French uh, traffic planner. He's the senior urban planner for the Paris metropolitan region. He's looked at research spanning 60 cities, which shows that when you take an entire lane out of an inner city highway, traffic falls by 14% within a few months. And it does so without making congestion worse, right? So the, the street gets no busier for cars, but fewer people are driving along it. So what that means in practice is everywhere there is an opportunity to shrink a bit of road space, you take a little bit of space back. So that might be removing some on-street car parking, that might be turning a a normal lane into a bus lane, it might be um, adding bike lanes on both sides and taking out a lane to enable that. Actually, London has a a, a huge number of inner city kind of four and six lane roads that could be easily um, kind of narrowed a bit to to claw back some of this land from the road network. That will lead to a drop in uh, car use and it will lead to an uptick in people using sustainable transport alternatives instead. Staying on the theme of roads, Merlin and Open City trustee Deborah Denner discuss some alternative uses for London's 20,000 hectares of road space. For context, 
12.4% of land in the capital is taken up by roads, significantly more than the just 8.8% of London currently used for housing. In February, the news broke that Lambeth Council was spearheading a pioneering new curbside strategy to reclaim roadside parking spaces for the local community and to implement sustainability measures. Here's a snippet of their conversation. There's a big bit of transport infrastructure that exists uh, on every street, and that is um, the space between the middle of the road and the curb, uh, which is used to often park cars. So quite interesting contrast to the, the High Line project is over in South London, where Lambeth Council has unveiled an ambitious curbside strategy. So they're saying that 94% of the curbs in Lambeth are taken up by parking spaces, yet only two in five residents in the borough own a car. Um, so what they want to do is reclaim about 25% of this curbside space for all kinds of cool things like shared scooter and bike bays, cycle hangers and parklets. What do you make of this as a kind of counter proposal for greening the infrastructure of the city? Do you think this this could be a potential success and something that we could you could see in Camden alongside the High Line? Yeah, I think this is a really exciting story because I think people in London, even if they own a car, often only use it a few times a week because you know, using private cars is being discouraged by the councils already. So you end up with residential streets which have got cars parked along either side which are just basically sitting there for most of the time and that represents a huge amount of embodied energy and in my opinion is quite ugly so I think the curbside strategy is quite exciting because it could be a, a sort of first step towards reclaiming the space that's um, that's currently just being taken up by quite unlovely lumps of metal. And um, on the design review panels that we manage, we often we have transport experts. So we're often talking about the kind of future of transport. And I've just got this sort of fantasy vision of the future of London where driverless cars kind of really work. And instead of owning a car, you could just kind of order one via an app to turn up at your door on the odd occasion when you need it. And then, you know, one car could be serving the needs of dozens of people. So that's a lot less embodied energy. And you could reclaim the space that's just taken up by parked cars for much more lovely things like Lambeth is suggesting. These are just a select few of the many transport stories we've covered over the past year. If you've enjoyed these stories and would like to hear more, the links to the full episodes featured are in the show notes. So do check them out. We hope you've enjoyed this special episode and stay tuned for a regular episode of The Lundown next week. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City made in association with the 20th Century Society and the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've covered, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which reports on all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and to support the important educational work of Open City, please become a friend of the charity today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Merlin Fulcher, Finn Harper, Cyber Chatter and Fran Williams. The editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities more open, accessible and equitable.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.